Will you stand then and let's read our scripture text together, Acts 9, verses 1 through 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. You may be seated. We're continuing our series in the Acts of the Apostles, and uh, we're talking this morning about the conversion of Saul, whom most of us know better as the Apostle Paul. Uh, Saul, or Shaul, is Hebrew. Paul is Greek. Uh, They're the same name. Um, Presumably, Saul changed his name to Paul so that he could minister to Gentiles, particularly to Greeks. The same name, if I mix them up this morning, please forgive me. I'll probably do that once or twice. All of the main headings on your sermon notes form this morning are titles of blockbuster movies. Um, Maybe you'll have each one of them figured out before I even get there. Um, We are principally this morning going to be in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, In Acts chapter 26, if you want to keep some fingers in those places, we'll be going back and forth a little bit. Let's begin with 
Saul's state of mind, his state of mind. And what we want to think about first this morning is who he was, what his life was all about. In three New Testament passages in particular, uh, Acts 22.3, Acts 26.4 and 5, and Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6, Saul, uh, or Paul at that point, lays out his pedigree as a Jew, a man of learning, a Pharisee, and a persecutor of the church. First in Acts 22.3, to the Jews in Jerusalem, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. So notice, first thing he identifies as, as he's laying out his verbal resume, is I'm a Jew. That was his religious identity. Secondly, he says, I was born in Tarsus and Cilicia, which at the time was a distinguished city. Acts 21.39, Paul says, I'm a citizen of no obscure city. Tarsus was located in the Roman province of Cilicia, which is uh, today uh, south-central Turkey. In the first century A.D., Tarsus was really the jewel of the province, um, a fortified Roman city the center of learning, of culture, and uh, a center of trade. And then Paul says, I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law. This is Gamaliel the elder, um, or the Jews know him as Rabban Gamaliel I. He was a leading authority in the Sanhedrin in the early first century, he was the grandson of the great and revered Rabbi Hillel, the elder. Um, Gamaliel was uh, a highly educated, uh, eminently wise and influential man. It would have been an enormous privilege and honor for Saul or for any young Jew to have been granted the opportunity to study under him. Uh, This is the same Gamaliel that we first met in chapter 5, verses 34 to 39, where Luke related that Gamaliel intervened on behalf of Peter and John. You remember that? Uh, When they were arrested, all of the Sanhedrin wanted to put them to death for their testimony about Jesus of Nazareth. And Gamaliel spoke up and he, he said to the men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. So he, he spoke caution into their passion. And, and just moments later, he added, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan is, or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you, you will not be able to overthrow them. And, and prophetically, he says, you, might even be found to be opposing God. Which certainly no self-respecting Jew wanted to do. And then he adds, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. With this in mind, go with me to the 26th chapter then of Acts, verses 4 to 5. In the 26th chapter of Acts, 
Paul is uh, testifying before Herod Agrippa and uh, says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Notice that his zeal was known by all the Jews. Saul had a a widespread reputation within Judaism for his religious commitment, his enthusiasm, his passion that led in time to his acceptance into the very strict sect known as the Pharisees. In in those days, another great honor to a young Jewish man. Uh, He must have been something of a prodigy because later he wrote to the churches in Galatia and said, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And then in the third chapter of his letter to the church in Philippi, verses 4 through 6, he rehearses again his Jewish bona fides. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, the flesh being my accomplishments, my religion, my morality, all the things that uh, I might consider were to my benefit before God, Uh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So in that statement that he was circumcised on the eighth day is a statement about his parents, that they were keepers of the law. Tradition holds that... uh, Saul's father was a very influential man uh, in the synagogues and in the city of uh, Tarsus. And uh, and he was born, Saul was, of the people of Israel. He says of the tribe of Benjamin, um, a highly regarded tribe within Israel, kind of a, a source of uh, prestige and pride. A Hebrew of Hebrews, a Jew's Jew, a Pharisee, a member of that exclusive, prestigious, religiously conservative sect. Now, he regarded himself as righteous on the basis of his rigid adherence to the law. So as he lays it out, everything about his, about his resume just reeks of smug social, ethnic, and religious superiority and, um, and in time uh, to his short career as a persecutor of the church. You might say that Paul was a man on fire, a man on fire. You may recall from our consideration of the execution of Stephen um, in chapter 7, when the members of the Sanhedrin uh, stoned him to death, they first laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, it says. Years later, Uh, Paul would acknowledge, and when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And that action, if you recall, um, in laying their garments at his feet, 
on that day identified him not as the not as the coat check boy or a household servant but rather as the authority, the leader, the instigator of Stephen's murder. And it was following that event that that the great persecution that we've been talking about for weeks now uh, broke out against the believers in Jerusalem and, and the people scattered into the outer reaches of the provinces of Judea and Samaria and beyond. He would later write to the churches in the Roman province of Galatia, you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, violently, and tried to destroy it. In Acts 22 and 26, he gave these descriptions of how he went about that attempt to destroy the church. He said, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Raging fury. So here in chapter 9, Luke tells us that Saul was still breathing threats, breathing murder against the disciples of the Lord. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Saul Saul still breathing threats of murder. I want to pause here just briefly because as we're considering who Saul is, was what he was all about. This description in chapter 9, verse 1 is so very revealing. Uh, Many translations, including the uh, NIV, the New International Version, add the word out so that it reads, still breathing out murder and threats, or murderous threats. But the Greek text doesn't have the word out Greek text says that he was breathing in threats and murder against the disciples. Why does that matter? Well, the word Luke uses here means to inhale, not to exhale. To breathe in, not to breathe out. And again, what's the point? Why even take the time to think about this? The reason is that it tells us something definitive about the state of Saul's mind and the state of his heart. Why we can call him a man on fire. It tells us that murder and threats were the very air that he breathed. And that he virtually lived on anger, on verbal abuse, on the desire to facilitate the deaths of followers of Jesus anywhere and everywhere he found them. It was those things that filled his lungs, filled his sails, as it were, and fueled his very existence, his sense of mission, his purpose in life. Going on, we read, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters 
to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul uh, must have received reports that some of those who had been dispersed from Jerusalem by the persecution had traveled north to Damascus. This is the same historical city, ancient city of Damascus in in Syria that, that you're hearing about regularly on the news these days. Even in the very first century, it was a great city. And it had an enormous Jewish community with a great number of synagogues. And so those who were fleeing persecution might have just disappeared. Those Jewish believers disappeared into that city and found their place in the synagogues there. Saul had gone to the high priest and, in effect, acquired from him letters to the synagogue leaders authorizing the extradition. That's what we would call it today, the extradition of any in their synagogues who had been or would yet be found belonging to the way. The way. This was how the early church identified themselves. Probably based on Jesus' words to the apostles in John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Paul's mission, Saul's mission, is really not a search and destroy mission primarily as much as it was a search and apprehend mission. In Acts 22, Paul said, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness from them. I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So these letters that were given by the chief priest to the synagogue leaders in Damascus would have identified Saul, would have identified his purpose in being there, would have given permission to the synagogue leaders really to uh, betray those Jews in their synagogues who believed in Jesus. So it was when he was on the way to Damascus to carry out this mission that his life was unexpectedly transformed by the sudden impact of a personal encounter with the risen, glorified Jesus Christ. Luke records, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. But Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, count him, three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So follow the text with me. He's approaching Damascus. Uh, It's about noon. The Middle Eastern 
sun is high in the sky. Um, If you've been to the Middle East in the summertime, you know how hot it can be. Or if you've been to Arizona, for that matter, you know how hot that can be. I should have titled this section High Noon, right? But the first thing that happens is that a a great light from heaven suddenly shone, it says, around him, around him. It happened suddenly as if it were lightning. And in, in chapter 26, he says that the light was even brighter. Imagine this now, even brighter than the midday sun. And it not only shone around him, but around those who were with him also. So there's this incredible sudden light shining all around them. And imagine that. I mean, if you could imagine even here a hot summer day at noon. Let's pray we get some of those this year, right? A hot summer day at noon. And a light is brighter than the light of the sun. Reminds us of the shepherds outside Bethlehem, doesn't it? In Luke 2, when when an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the, the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And the image in in both texts is that they were enveloped by this great light that shone down from heaven. But here in Acts 9, the word that Luke employs is similar, but it indicates that not only did the light envelop them and surround them, but that it also held them as if they were apprehended or arrested by the light itself. And then in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, Saul just falls to the ground. And in 26.14, his companions were also knocked to the ground and were reminded uh, of that moment again in John's Gospel, chapter 18, when those soldiers came to the Garden of Gethsemane and looking for Jesus to arrest him. And uh, having informed him and the disciples that they were looking for Jesus of Nazareth, it says that they drew back and fell to the ground when Jesus himself answered, I am he, or actually more literally, I am. We might also recall Matthew's account of the resurrection when an angel of the Lord came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And then Matthew records that the angel's appearance was like lightning. His clothing was white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They fell to the ground. In the case of the shepherds, the light that shone around them was the reflected glory of the Lord, reflected from the angels who spend most of their time in the very presence of God. It was reflected light. It was reflected glory. The light that enveloped and bound Saul and his fellow travelers was the direct light of the glory of the resurrected and glorified Son of God. And out of that dazzling, blinding light came a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting 
me. Saul could only answer, who are you, Lord? Some commentators observe that that the word Lord in this case could be translated, sir. Who are you, sir? As if he didn't know. But I'm confident that, that in that moment, Saul was quite aware that whatever was going on, what he was witnessing, what he was experiencing, was the very presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. And he could not have been more surprised, more broken, more undone when the voice came back, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you, you, Saul, are persecuting. And again, let's pause here so as not to miss the the import and the impact of what Jesus said to Saul. Who did Saul think he was persecuting? He thought he was persecuting Jews who had become persuaded that Jesus is the Messiah to whom all of the law and the prophets pointed and to whom all Israel, for whom all Israel had been waiting for so long. Saul was absolutely convinced of the opposite, that Jesus of Nazareth had been a fake, a wannabe, a fraud, which was made plain to him by the fact that he was crucified on a Roman cross, clearly showing to a trained biblical mind that he was under the curse of God. And here again, the words of Isaiah 53, verse 4, stand out. We esteemed him, that is Jesus, Messiah. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. That was Saul's perspective. But now Saul's reeling and now he knows it's true. Jesus of Nazareth really was raised from the dead. He really is alive. He really did ascend to the right hand of the Father. He really is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, this Jesus, this Messiah is so personally identified with his church that to persecute the church is to persecute him. And I wonder if you've, you've ever contemplated that every insult, every offense, every assault against the church is felt by Jesus. Every bit of opposition you receive from the world as a Christian because you've identified yourself with Christ and with his church, he feels, he experiences. He feels every pain that is ours as his people and as his bride. And by persecuting the way, Saul to his horror, to his horror, thinking he's doing the work of God, Saul finds himself to be an enemy of God. And then verse 6, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And in his account in chapter 22, that command from Jesus was preceded by his own question. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise, go into Damascus. There you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And again, Saul had to be saying, what? All that's appointed for me to do? See, that question, what shall I do, Lord, is nearly identical to the question asked by those who heard Peter's message 
about Jesus on the day of Pentecost. And as they were convicted of the truth of what he was saying about Jesus as Messiah, having been raised from the dead, they asked, in real desperation, what shall we do? In chapter 26, his account of what Jesus said to him at that moment was even more explicit. He received a commission from the Lord right there in the context of that conversation. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Before I do, I want you to see two more features of this encounter. Luke tells us in chapter 9, verse 7, that the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Now pay attention to this. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So they're hearing a voice, but they don't see anybody. In 22.9, he adds, Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So they're seeing the light. They're hearing a voice but they don't see anybody and they don't understand what the voice is saying. Even though, Saul says, Jesus spoke to him in Hebrew. In putting those two verses together, we we get a glimpse of what was going on for Saul's friends. They'd been knocked to the ground. They couldn't speak. They saw the bright light. They heard the voice of Jesus. They couldn't see him, nor could they understand So now back to the conversation between Jesus and Saul. And I want to pick it up. I want to pick up uh, Paul's account of this event and his address to King Agrippa, chapter 26, beginning at verse 15. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. See, Saul's conversion and his commissioning as the apostle to the Gentiles all took place in one amazing, life-transforming account with the risen and glorified Christ, the Lord of the church. Now notice with me one more thing before we move on. Go to verse 16 of chapter 26. Jesus says to him, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in uh, in which I will appear to you. Jesus says, I've appeared to you. In the dazzling light, Saul not only heard the voice of Jesus, but Saul saw Jesus himself. Jesus appeared to him. And this is the final post-resurrection appearance of the risen Lord. 
Why is this important? Because one of the essential qualifications of an apostle was that he had with his own eyes seen the Lord and that he had been an eyewitness to his resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 9.1, to some who would challenge his identity and his authority as a commissioned apostle, Paul asked, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? It's hard to imagine that, that Saul uh, had not ever laid eyes on Jesus earlier when Jesus was performing his ministry, his three years of public ministry. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But here now, Saul has seen with his own eyes the resurrected Christ. Later in chapter 15 of the same letter, Paul wrote, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Cephas is Peter. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. It is impossible to overestimate the significance of this moment in the life of Saul. When God apprehended him by his grace, transformed his mind and heart, pivoted the trajectory of his life around 180 degrees, and gave him this great commission as the apostle to, of all people, the Gentiles. The Gentiles. See, there, there is no greater, more important event in the New Testament, perhaps in the entire Bible, after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, than the conversion of Saul. Finally, amazing grace. Amazing grace. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing, so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Someone asked me between services what what I thought Saul might have been doing during those three days that he was without sight and he was fasting. And I, and I said, I, I have to think that he was connecting the dots. That he was already beginning to rework his entire theology, his entire understanding of who God is, of who Jesus is, of what the kingdom of God is all about, what, what needed to happen next. And Saul is about to meet Ananias, who I think is, is one of the foremost unsung heroes in the history of the church. Uh, he appears only here. He appears only briefly. He, he obeys the call of God, uh, plays a, a 
a very short, very important role in Saul's life at this pivotal moment. And uh, Luke introduces Ananias as a Jew, a disciple of Jesus, a devout man who had a sterling reputation among the Jews in the city of Damascus. And who better, I ask you, who better to appoint to minister to Saul at this moment than a man whose name means God has shown grace. God has shown grace. By the way, Saul's name means one who is prayed for. Isn't that great? One who is prayed for. The Lord said to Ananias in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Uh, notice Ananias' responsiveness. The Lord calls his name Ananias. And Ananias recognizes the voice of the Lord. And he says, here I am, Lord. Similar to what we saw with Philip last week. Rise up and go, and he rose up and went. Simple obedience. Wouldn't it be amazing what could take place if we were all so attuned to the voice of God? so ready to respond as Ananias was. And I I love the detail and the directions God gives Ananias here. What, What a vivid picture of the sovereign knowledge of God about every little detail of our lives. God tells him to go to the street called Straight. And by the way, Straight Street is still there in Damascus to this day, over 2,000 years later. Same street, not just a part of the ruins, but an active street in the city of Damascus. So God gives Ananias the name of the street, and then he gives him the name of the owner of the house where Saul is staying. He says, uh, go to the house of Judas. Not Judas Iscariot, another Judas. But no street address. And maybe Ananias knew Judas. We don't know. Uh, But if not, you know, Ananias, ask around. You'll find it. And then he tells Ananias what Saul's doing at that very moment. You know that, that God knows at every moment in your life exactly what, what you're doing. He knows exactly what you're thinking. He doesn't even use drones for that. He, he just sees you. He knows. So he tells Ananias that Saul's praying and and that Saul has had a vision of a man named Ananias coming to lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And so, no pressure, Ananias, but Saul's had a vision of a man named Ananias. He saw you. He knows your voice. And that guy, that, that's you, Ananias. And, well, the guy's blind, so, well, uh, you, you're kind of on the hook. When Ananias realizes who it is the Lord is sending him to, he registers a a minor objection. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. I wonder, have you ever done what Ananias is doing right here? Have you ever taken the initiative to explain 
to the all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful God why what he is asking you to do doesn't make a whole lot of sense? I mean, have, have you ever sought to counsel God about what ought to go down in your life? I mean, I, I think to Ananias, this is probably uh, feeling like God sending him to Florida during Shark Week. And, and so he feels the need to inform the Lord about the dangers posed by this particular shark that's in the local waters. But God counters, go. Go, Ananias, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, I have big plans for this man, Ananias. So here's your hat, here's your coat, there's the door. Don't let it hit you in the back on the way out. So Ananias departed. He obeyed, entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized Taking food, he was strengthened. And I love this moment. I love this moment. Notice how he addresses Saul, the persecutor. How he addresses Saul, the fanatic. Saul, the terrorist. Saul, the serial murderer. He calls him Brother Saul. See, Ananias got it, didn't he? Ananias connected the dots. God had chosen this man. God loved this man. God had applied the blood of Jesus to this man's account. God had included him and his family, the church. So Saul, in spite of all the damage he had done, in spite of all the threat that he seemed to be, was now his brother. Brother Saul. And then as if to confirm and validate his arrival, he connects some more dots. The Lord Jesus sent me. You, you know the, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road? Yeah, same one. Same one. He sent me so, so that you can get your sight back and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and no sooner had he said those words that it says something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. I, I don't know if those were contact lenses. Probably not. But... You know, something may have happened in that moment of, of exposure to the dazzling light to his eyes. Cataracts? I, I don't know. Burns? I don't know. Whatever it was, it fell away. And he could see again. And Ananias said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you, Brother Saul, will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And then Ananias baptized him. They, they ate together and Saul was a, a new man with a new identity, a new mission in life. And he expressed that in his first letter to Timothy chapter 1 where he said, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, 
because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I found this quote from Albert Moeller in my studies on, for this message, and I, I just love this. There's rich irony in this passage, he writes. The arrester becomes the arrested. The one who would lay hands on Christians becomes the one upon whom Christian hands are laid. An enemy of the way becomes a brother of the way. Amen? Well, as we close, let me just pose this question. What, what does conversion look like? If we, certainly Saul's conversion was quite different than, than most. And Saul's conversion will shock us unless we've grasped the sheer wonder, the sheer marvel of God's sovereign grace. So we ought to expect the unexpected from God, right? I mean, he's always blowing our minds. God apprehended and saved one of the most unlikely of men, a violent persecutor of the church, to be the great apostle to the Gentiles, to take the gospel decisively beyond Jerusalem, beyond the boundaries of Judaism, to make disciples of all the nations. I remember years ago there was a a man who was a serial murderer, serial rapist, who was first sentenced to life in prison and then sentenced to death for his crimes. And a leading uh, Christian man went and visited him in prison just hours before his execution. And uh, by his report, this man prayed to receive Christ. Ted Bundy. Can we believe it? Do we demand proof? Is Ted Bundy beyond the grace of God? The love of Christ? I don't think so. So is there anything we can learn from Saul's conversion as we think about our own or even the prospect of our own? Let me say first, and you'll be relieved about this, it's not necessary for any of us to be struck by divine lightning and and fall to the ground in in order to receive the forgiveness and reconciliation God offers us through Jesus. Although, evidently, it could happen that way. I hope it doesn't happen to you, but, you know, quit being a jerk. Neither is it necessary for God to call your name out loud in Hebrew. God can speak to you in any way, by any means that he chooses. It seems that he most often chooses to speak to most of us through the Bible that tells us who God is, tells us of his love for us, tells us what he has done for us through the life and the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus. 
and the plans he has for each of us. Nor is it necessary for you to be granted a vision of the resurrected and glorified Christ. Although in recent years I've heard many accounts of people, most of them Muslims, having dreams in which the resurrected Jesus appears to them. And as a result, they put their faith in Jesus as their Savior and surrender their lives to his leadership. But here's what the Bible says we must do. First, we must call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. There are many paths to Jesus. There's only one way to God, and that is through Jesus. In Acts 2, we read this, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does that mean? It's not just forming words phonetically based on a set, an ordered set of letters. It's not just speaking the name of Jesus out loud. It's calling upon everything that he is, everything that he has done, everything that he has promised. And asking that all of that be applied to your life. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in Acts chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else, Peter said, for God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Second, we must surrender our lives to him, turning away from sin, putting our faith in Jesus as the only Savior. Earlier I mentioned the the question of the Jews in Jerusalem when they heard the message of the gospel from the mouth of the Apostle Peter. And it's the same question Saul asked of Jesus. They said, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them on that day, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise. The promise of salvation is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What does it mean to repent? It means first to change your mind about the sin in your life. See, uh, these days, sin has become kind of a, a badge of honor, badge of courage. It's a kind of a, a means of self-expression. It, and it, it separates you from God. It separates you from God now. And it will separate you from him forever if you don't turn from it and ask him to forgive you of your sins. The Apostle Paul said, for everyone has sinned, all of us, every one of us. We all fall short of God's glorious standards. And just a few chapters later, he wrote, when people sin, they earn what sin pays, which is death. But God, but God, but God gives his people a free gift, eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And third, you must choose to follow his leadership. 
so that he is able to accomplish his will and his purposes through you. This man we've learned about today would later write that he knew that Christ had laid hold of him. So his purpose in life was was now to lay hold of that for, for which Christ had laid hold of him. And then as Saul did in the Bible, the Bible says that you should be baptized as an outward expression of that inward change that Christ has accomplished in you. Baptism publicly identifies you with Christ. Jesus said, if if you won't identify yourself with me, neither will I identify, neither will I identify myself with you. Baptism is that point of going public. Baptism also identifies you with his church. One of the things that stands out in the pages of the Acts of the Apostles is that everyone who believed was added to the church. And we have kind of a casual attitude about the church these days, don't we? Jesus has never stopped having a, has never had a casual attitude about the church. When he saved you, he meant for you to be a part, an active part, a dynamic part of the church. This morning, as we close, I want to invite you to believe in Jesus, to call on his name, to trust in Christ, to ask him to forgive your sins. Would you take that communion cup? This little cup and what it represents, the symbol that it is, reminds us of the means by which God provided salvation for us. It was through the cross. On the cross, Christ died. He bore all of our sins in his own body. He said, it is finished. What was finished? The atonement for the sins of all of us. One sacrifice for all sin, for all time. And so the night before Jesus was betrayed and arrested, he was having dinner with his disciples and he took some bread. Probably tasted a lot better than this little wafer. He took bread and he broke it and he shared it with the disciples and he said, this bread is my body which is given for you. And he's pointing forward to the cross where he would die. He said, take it and eat it, all of you. A little while later, Jesus took a cup of wine from the table and he raised it up, gave thanks for it, blessed it. He looked at his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant, the new promise, the new deal in my blood. Drink it, all of you, in remembrance of me.
Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It was at the cross that your sins were dealt with so that you can be forgiven of them. So that you don't have to work harder, you don't have to be more religious, more moral, to earn God's favor, to earn his love, to receive his mercy and grace. It's all done. The operative word in religion is do. The operative word in Christianity is done. Because everything that was necessary for your salvation has been done for you. I invite you today to put your faith in Jesus Christ and to enter in to the blessing of what he accomplished for you at the cross.